people don't want to work that hard to be educated and to learn and to do, make it easy, make it fun. If it's fun, it's, you know, I, if it's fun, I want to do it because you're a hundred percent right. I could Google an awful lot of information on sharks. I could Google information on just about any topic, but I can't take away the experience I have my, with my child or grandchild mm -hmm. like that. That is like a memory. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. This episode of the podcast is kindly sponsored by Attractions IO, the guest experience platform behind Merlin Entertainment's San Diego Zoos and the Kennedy Space Center's branded mobile apps. And like us, the folks at Attractions IO are on a mission to elevate our experiences. Their latest launch adds in-app photos to the Attractions IO mobile app, giving guests more time to view, purchase, and share their media with loved ones. Impressively, 88% of consumers say that they trust content and recommendations from their friends and family over any other form of marketing, making user-generated content like photo sharing, an essential strategy for your marketing team this season. To learn more about Attractions.io and the new in-app photo feature, visit attractions.io slash photos. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going fantastically, Josh. How are you? Wow, that was, you really changed that up there. You like stretched out the going and then like rushed through the fantastic, fantastic week. Did you do that again? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Like threw me off there. <laughs> I'm doing really well. Question awesome. for you. Yes. We've talked a lot about generational differences and those who are true fans of attraction pros know your thoughts on generational <laughs> labels and the way that people uh, make decisions with whether customers or employees, guests or employees, uh, as it relates to their generational label. But the question that I have for you is, what do you see as being your generational mindset? Hmm. I don't know. That's that's really a tough question. Like, like it's it's hard to sort of put that into into a, like perspectives without really thinking about it. But yeah. I would say if you were to look at some of the the traditional generational labels, right? I think I'm. I'm somewhat of a combination because okay. there's there's some areas where I do love technology and I love, you know, the ease of what that does. On the other side of things, I'm also very much people oriented and I really want to have the kind of that people old timey, if you will, um, uh, experience and traditional and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I think I probably you know, I'm on the fence somewhere between traditional and modern. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's a great question. <laughs> I don't know, um, which probably drives some people crazy, but that's okay. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe yours? Well, your answer, your answer is intriguing. And I think that it proves a point that is brought up in this interview, because I feel the same way. 
So I mm. sometimes feel like I, I'm, you know, tech savvy. I don't want to talk to a person. I'm Gen Z some days. And some days I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to use your live chat on your website. I want to call and I want to listen to your whole, well, I don't want to listen to your whole music. I hope that somebody picks it, <laughs> but I want to talk to a person about the, the issue that I'm having. So uh, perhaps I, I transcend generational mindsets based on what I'm doing. The reason why I think this proves a point that's coming up in this episode is that some people might categorize you and I under different generational labels just because we have a, a little bit of an age difference. yeah. But what we're going to talk about today is that the generation doesn't necessarily associate exactly with age. Sometimes it associates with mindset and consumer preferences or employee preferences, or just the way that you are adapting with everything in the world where, yeah, some days you might be a, a Gen Z over here. You might be a millennial over here, a Gen X over here, a boomer over here. And I forgot what the what the older one is called. What what what's island that? generation is one island of generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and, and then I I think the next generation is the next generation is a Gen Alpha. I think it is even like those who are, I don't know. I think they've run out of letters at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> when uh, when my wife and I we were expecting our son Jacob, we saw uh, an article that said that that the generation born around 2020 were going to be called coronials. And you know what? I haven't seen that in print or anywhere in a few years. Right. right. That generational labels might might come and go a little bit, but the mindset is the important piece. And that's what drives the marketing. That's what drives the culture. Not just this person is 16 years old and this person is 60. So we're going to treat them in very different ways in very specific ways, but it is what their mindset is. And what I think is so interesting that really occurred to me is that there is a difference between focusing on that from an employee standpoint and a marketing standpoint. Because mm -hmm. I think from an employee standpoint, my my thought is, and what I advocate for, is to really look at each individual, right? You know, and and sometimes that's difficult at scale, as our guest will say. Um, but it it can be difficult. But I think when you're talking about marketing, you you've got so many more people that you have to market to that you are focused on demographics. And what I really like about what Jeff has to say, which we'll introduce him in just a second. Uh, but what I really like about what he has to say is that you know you can have a mindset of being, you know, like you said, digitally first or more traditional. And it doesn't matter what age you are. And so that I think probably builds the case, especially for an employee to get to know that person as an individual, as a person, because you can't make that judgment call just based on their age or how old they they happen to look because their, their internal um, thought process and values could be very, very different. And you can be making a huge mistake and then they may leave because they don't like the way they're treated. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you said his name, Jeff. Jeff Brom is our guest today. He is a serial author. He's a serial entrepreneur. He is a contributor to Forbes. He has interviewed both of us for a series that at the time of this recording is still coming up. We're looking forward to it. Uh, he is a consultant for Lane Terra Lever, which is a marketing agency that uh, works heavily in the attractions industry. And uh, one of his big areas of focus is generational mindsets and the way that we market to to consumers, the way that we market to employees or build employee culture based on the mindsets of various generations. So we get to hear from Jeff about uh, all things as it relates to uh, kind of serving the, the latest 
whether it's generations as consumers and buyers or those who have influence over buyers and purchase decisions as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And what I think is really fascinating is how he talks about things in a different context, but it's the same topic that you and I talk about, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about the yeah. guest and the employee experience and the, the intersection there and, and how, you know, consumers and employees might, might look at things a little differently, but at the, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all humans, right? And we're all, we're all consumers of something. And I really like how he says, you know, the, the brands that are most successful are the ones that can make sort of an alignment with the values of their consumer. And I think the same thing is true from an employee standpoint, right? When you can see yourself as part of that organization, I mean, just look at someplace like Disney that has so many fanatics, Universal, especially when Harry Potter came out, right? And there were so many Potterheads, is that the, what they're called? I don't know. Um, sure. Sure. Uh, Harry Potter fans that, you know, wanted to be a part of that because they were so already emotionally connected to that IP that now they wanted to live in that world. That is a connection that you can't, you know, your wage isn't going to buy that. You know, your, your benefits aren't going to buy that. Your 401k is not going to buy that. Um, that is something already ingrained in that human being. So if they can see themselves as part of it, whether it's a, a consumer brand or if it's from an employee standpoint, that's over half the battle. Mm -hmm. And what's cool is, you know, he talks about that and, and weaving in brand values and uses a term that, that is very fascinating, which is your editorial authority. And we talk about that with, like you said, of people seeing themselves in the brand, whether they're employees or whether they're guests, and how that aligns with their editorial authority and the brands that they that they might have to choose a side on. And we bring that up and, you know, that's that's a hot topic. It's a, you know, it's a sticky topic, you know, today. And uh, and it's uh, it's important to talk about that. And we also talk a little bit about uh, new ways of entertaining guests, particularly in zoos, aquariums, museums, um, blending that entertainment with education, but focusing on that moments that matter with the guests that resonate the most. So should we get to some moments that matter more than our banter and get to this I, interview with Jeff? I think so. <laughs> hey, Jeff, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for having me, Josh. Absolutely. We're so excited to kind of jump into this conversation. Josh and I got to meet you uh, last week, and uh, now we're having you on the show because you had some really interesting things to say. Um, probably not real well known yet to folks in attractions. So can you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. I'm a senior advisor at Lane Terra Lieber, a marketing agency based in Phoenix. I'm a five-time author and I'm a serial entrepreneur. And the way we got connected was through that Forbes series I'm working on. I was uh, interviewing Jacob, um, who's a new CEO, I'm sure you know, at IAPA. And he said, you know, here's some people to talk to. And, and then one thing led to another. And, you know, now I got to talk with you. I got to talk to some folks at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and it's been fantastic. I'm excited about this series. Excellent. Yeah, we're we're excited to be a part of that series. So in advance, thank you so much for that. And uh, now it's exciting. You're kind of on the other side of the microphone here of, uh, of being the interviewee instead of the interviewer. Uh, you mentioned uh, Lane Terra Lever. Can you tell us a little bit more about that company? Sure. Uh, Lane Terra Lever has deep expertise uh, in the attractions entertainment space. And we recently published uh, some research on customer experience. Uh, which is freely available to your listeners. And uh, so we'll make sure you have a copy of that and folks can obviously download it at the website. Uh, and and one of the things that I wanted to do uh, as somebody with a little bit of gray hair is uh, 
is really reach out to folks in this industry because what an opportunity not just to entertain but to educate at the same time on on things related to like sustainability and and, and other things that are sort of uh, that I have a soft spot for that I've uh, spent a fair amount of time working on and so that's exciting to me. So I'm curious. Uh, I know you and I did our our bit for that that um, that article for Forbes, but what other kind of things have you learned as you're talking to different people around the uh, the attractions industry? Well, um, at a high level, you know, COVID obviously was uh, a big shockwave for everyone across industries. Uh, but when you can't attend something, that's you know a bigger shockwave, right? So it was an even bigger shockwave, and uh, the pent up demand for experiences and emotional connections uh, and family entertainment is just fantastic. What a great opportunity for brands and consumers to, to create lasting memories in, in the family entertainment space. And, you know, just in the few interviews I've done and I have more to do, uh, I've learned quite a bit. And then of course, with the formal research I did with Lane Terralever, we codified a lot of meaningful trends. So uh, pretty exciting times. I think the future is very bright. Tomorrowland, and I'm not talking about a particular theme park. I'm talking about the future. Tomorrowland looks pretty bright if you're in the attraction space because consumers want to have the opportunity to create shared memories. And, and so the future is bright for those brands that lean into uh, the needs uh, at a price point and convenience factor that, that makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned the research that you've been doing, and I'm a big fan of research and I'm a big fan of customer experience. So I'm actually really excited to learn all about what it is that uh, that you've been looking into as far as as far as the trends and really uh, not just the the findings, but also the questions that uh, that you've been asking. Yeah, just at a at a high level. So uh, you know, Gen Z is uh, what I would call driving a lot of change. Now they're not necessarily the biggest spenders in terms of their you know purchasing power, but they are affecting so many trends. So as, as brands start to think about what they need to do, they got to win with this consumer. This consumer is looking to build emotional connections. They're aging into the sweet spot and they set trends in category after category, food, technology, entertainment. And so sometimes what I try to encourage people to do is think about, uh, you know, the impact that that consumer is going to have on other people. For example, if I was going to go buy a new piece of technology, I'm going to call my 26-year-old son, Scott, and get his input. He's not the buyer, but guess what? He's probably the person who will make the decision for me as a buyer. So in the family entertainment space, um, you know, I wouldn't discount millennials or Xers. Uh, I might discount the silent generation just a little bit, but, uh, but, but Gen Z is going to be at the center of the bullseye. And what we did in this research, um, and it's not so easy in, in a podcast, is we cut all the data by generation. So attractions, industries, pros can look at key drivers by generation, and then they can look for the thematic kinds of things that are going to be so important, which is kind of funny to me because the way I got started uh, down this journey for me was I, I led the first public study of millennials as consumers with the Boston Consulting Group in 2010 and 11. I know it's hard to imagine, like, of course, people know a lot about millennials, but it's <laughs> like at, back at the day, uh, it, it didn't exist. There was literally, you know, nothing on Google and chat GPT. Eh, it wasn't there yet. <laughs> you know, Jeff, you and I talked the other day about how you know, there's different ways to look at those generations, right? You even said something like, you know, somebody that might have the qualities of a Gen Z might be 
older than that quote unquote age group, right? You know, there could be a somebody who is digitally first that's 50 years old, right? So that to me was a really interesting take because I'm not like from a leadership and management standpoint, I'm not as as um, focused on those because I think we need to treat each employee as an individual, but I can definitely see from a marketing standpoint how you, you need to really focus on demographics. So can you talk maybe a little bit more about that relationship? Absolutely. It's a, it's a fantastic point. And you're one of the few people who quickly picked up on it. So when I wrote the book, Marketing to Gen Z, which was the third of my five books, so the third child, if you will, <laughs> uh, it was a research-based book. And uh, what I my point of view was, think about Gen Z through the lens of mindset, which is to say you could be in your 50s and have a Gen Z mindset. You trade up for brands that matter. You trade brand down to brands that don't. You believe in use word of mouth and word of mouth, and you develop friend networks on different topics. And the friend you would rely on to give you information on technology advice could look very different than the friend who gives you advice on wine or travel. And, and frankly, Gen Z mindsets are pe- people who are the ultimate day traders. They have to balance a budget. And they're paying a small premium for brands that are good. And they use private label in the grocery store when brand doesn't matter. Uh, and so it was kind of interesting back in the day when I did this research, I found that more than 10% of Gen Z by birth year was anti-Gen Z by mindset. <laughs> and, there were, and there were millions of consumers over the age of 50 in our data set who adopted that Gen Z mindset. So, uh, so it's kind of fun kind of fun. And that's why I think it's important for attractions pros to think thematically about things that are going to be really important. And for example, at Lane Terrell, we've made a big bet on customer experience. And and in order to deliver an amazing customer experience, let's think about that and deconstruct it. You're going to have to have an amazing employee experience because you're going to have to win inside to win outside. And you're going to have to embrace the technology that allows the guest not only to have a seamless ticketing experience and whatnot, but to build emotional connections. Because the brands that are winning are building emotional connections. And those emotional connections give them a small margin advantage. That small margin advantage translates into you know, a sustainable profit model. So you mentioned the employee experience. And one of the things that Matt and I talk about a lot is the intersection between the guest and employee experience. And a lot of things you do that are guest experience initiatives can be duplicated over to the employee experience side of it and vice versa. I'm curious from the mindset of marketing to generations or serving to various generations if you see uh, very similar parallels or if you see that that's true as well as far as what you're doing to market to your Gen Z consumers, that same mindset and that same strategy should be used to build a culture of Gen Z employees and millennials and boomers and Gen X and, you know, and, and kind of serving all those generations, both from the guest experience and the employee experience side. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, at this moment in time, one of the hot topics is inflation, right? And so we're reading about layoffs and we're reading about things. But the job market has been very tight and I think will continue to stay fairly tight because there are so many people aging out of the job market every year and, and there are fewer people aging in. And so that that implies that you have to innovate around that customer experience, which is why it's so important to dig into research uh, around customer experience. And that implies you also have to, to make it fairly seamless. So, you know, I might go to a digital ticketing thing and that, and, and that might be very, you know, Gen Z mindset friendly, but you still have to keep the emotional connection in that process. In terms of the employee piece, it's hard for me to uh, and identify any service brand that wins with consumers that doesn't win with employees first. I don't care whether we're talking about you know, a great company like Disney, a great company like Marriott or Chipotle, right? 
if you don't have employees who love your brand, frankly, uh, you're going to have a big hill to climb. And so, you know, how do you build trust at a scale uh, with with uh, those kinds of employees? Not so easy, uh, but, you know, recognize, reward, uh, you know, motivate, hopefully career path, all those kinds of things are going to be important. I am not an HR strategist. Uh, however, you know, I, I, I do see in the research, both the research done by Lane Tara Lever and the research I've uh, been fortunate to see through Forbes because I get a lot of research, you know, people pitching their study du jour uh, to me every day uh, from the seat of, of, I'm in at Forbes. Um, and so the data is pretty convincing in my opinion. And that is, you know, strong brands get, uh, you know, a small price premium in order to win with consumers, you're going to have to win inside. And, and what that looks like might vary from brand to brand, but, you know, reducing turnover, <laughs> treating people well, the basic kinds of stuff, still wins the day. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Cause I talked about that all the time. Josh will tell you, you know, all the time is, is that's sort of my mantra, you know, treating people well, treating people with kindness, that type of thing. Um, but one of the things I'd love to kind of back up just a little bit, as you're talking about customer service and you talk about, or I should say experience and the emotional connection, right? I think it's very easy for an operator to say, well, we're going to get people in, it's going to be efficient. We're going to get them the ticket. They're going to get over the go-karts, you know, and that type of thing. And especially as you mentioned, the, the tighter labor markets where we may have now technology doing what a, a human being used to do, right? Where it might've been easier to make an emotional connection. What are things that you're finding that people can do to continue to build that emotional connection when you have fewer people actually interacting with your guests? So, I, you know, I think that's a, a major challenge for many brands. Uh, first, I'm going to tell you a quick story and then I'm going I'm to come back. So yesterday I was working on the Forbes series and I interviewed David Rosenberg, who's a vice president at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. They have 2 million visitors a year. Okay. Now I haven't been to Monterey Bay recently, but like the last time I was there, I don't think there were 75,000 people that lived within that, you know, that town. Okay. So they're attracting a lot of visitors from somewhere two hours, three hours, four hours away. Right. Uh, and while it is very important to figure out how to move people through, you know, an experience in a timely and efficient way, whether that's ticketing, whether it's on site, it's those moments that matter and identifying those family entertainment moments where there's ideally high levels of entertainment and some education. I don't think people are going to Monterey Bay Aquarium for education, but if there's entertainment and education, then, you know, that's a great experience. Now I haven't sat down with David uh, since I just did this interview yesterday and said, Hey, can you show me the secret sauce for how you do all that? But I am quite sure that it is not an accident that they do that. And I'm confident they look at research. I know he's looked at the CX research that, that Lane Terralever's done. I know they do their own research and I'm sure they innovate, you know, cause there's a tension point. I mean, uh, a robot, if you will, technology will always remember to upsell and a human won't, but finding ways to, to find some surprise and delight before, during, and after the physical visit is so important. And I think the best operators know before, during, and after really matters because while you have the guest on site during, there is a before and after. And if it doesn't go on my Instagram or my TikTok, did I even actually go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium? <laughs> did my visit even exist? Come on. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
We've also had the opportunity to interview David Rosenberg a, a few years ago, actually. And I, I, I do recall talking with him and, and several other people, kind of this balance of education and entertainment. And it's something we've we've had a, conversations with with a number of people in terms of how people are consuming information at an aquarium, at a zoo, at a museum that's there. It's a it's a building there for educational purposes, right? That should be you know that's that's their mission, and, and the, obviously the conservation with, with zoos and aquariums. Um, but sure. the ways in which that that is delivered, of course, is enhancing and evolving. And many of them are looking to for-profit organizations and saying, well, we actually need to implement a little bit of, of Disney type experience into it so that the content that we're delivering resonates better. If you go to Monterey Bay Aquarium, you can learn all about fish. You can learn just the same by Googling all that information and, and Googling that, you know, of, of what kind of fish there are in the ocean. But using Monterey as the example, you go there because you're learning it through an entertaining way. Uh, so curious as far as what you're seeing, uh, whether it's museums or zoos, aquariums, really adapting to the digital age while reinforcing this education through entertainment uh, type of mindset to be able to, to kind of hit both of those. You know, um, I don't know that there's a one size fits all approach that works, but at the core, I think the brands that do this well, listen really well. They listen to the guests and they figure out how to, at the same time, they include surprise and delight they, you know, they, they look for efficiency and the, and these are not mutually exclusive. And then, you know, one of my favorite topics and the book I most recently wrote about was sustainability and innovation. So I don't think someone's going to Disney or Monterey Bray to be educated, but if they can learn something and have a great time, then I feel a little better about myself as a human, as a parent, when I leave, because I know, wow, that was a lot of fun. And they found a little nugget of something in that journey, right? Uh, and it could be anywhere. Um, frankly, uh, 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 this is not an attraction, but I went to the Waste Management Open in Phoenix this year. Now they get about 400,000 guests on a Saturday. So it is busy and the guest experience is not gonna be perfect, but I gotta tell you, it was almost perfect. And the first thing you do on your way to the course is there's opportunities to learn about recycling and maybe four or five or 3% of the guests are going to pass through that, but that's four or five or 6% or whatever it is of those 400,000 folks. And then along the way, they have thought about the messaging on every trash can, what goes where and what goes. So subliminally, they know people are coming for a party. They know people are coming to get entertained. Okay. That is why people go. They want to see golf. They want to have a drink. They want to have fun. And at the, at the end of the day, they've embedded that in. Um, and whether you're thinking about that because you're running that kind of a event or whether you're thinking about that longitudinally at, at Monterey Bay or Disney or anywhere else, I think it starts with listening and then figuring out the ways to embed the surprise and delight and make it easy. People don't wanna work that hard to be educated and to learn and to do, make it easy, make it fun. If it's fun, it's, you know, I, if it's fun, I want to do it because you're a hundred percent right. I could Google an awful lot of information on sharks. I could Google information on just about any topic, but I can't take away the experience I have my, with my child or grandchild mm -hmm. like that. That is like a memory. Well, and you had written, uh, I, I think, a piece on museums and the digital age and how they can kind of transform their experience. And I recently went to a museum and it was a really interesting topic, but most of the things were words on a plaque, right? And the things that I found myself really engaging with were the videos, 
right? And I don't consider myself like someone who doesn't like to read or, you know, whatever, but I, I, I felt like the things that held my attention were the stories that were being told, not necessarily the factoids that were, you know, about this piece of equipment or whatever it is. So um, what are you seeing as, as trends for, for that kind of communication? Even if, if it's not the, the education that people are going for, it seems like a lot of institutions like that, they've built their their reputation on on education, right? So yeah. now how do they work in that surprise and delight? So uh, what a great point you made. Okay, uh, yeah, consumers are not gonna remember factoids. There's a fabulous book written many years ago called Made to Stick by the Heath brothers. Uh, I think they were both out of Stanford. And people remember stories, just what you said. And so when you're designing that, whether you're a museum or whether you're, uh, an attraction, you know, those stories, if, if they're, if they're sticky, if they're fun, if there's something about them that's memorable, you, t you retell the story. And so video is going to be likely more effective. Interactive is going to likely be more effective. Uh, where I'm part of the story, where the story is focused on me, not the brand, uh, because the brand I care about is me, not yours. And the more you help me care about my brand, which might include my family, right. Mm -hmm. Then, then you're winning. And so, um, so I think getting back to those kinds of fundamentals is important. And, and I, that doesn't mean that facts don't matter. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but, but the facts aren't, you know, I'm not going to remember, was it seven out of 10 sharks that do this or eight out of 10? <laughs> no, it, is it when the hippopotamus charges, is it 35% of the time that, that it's deadly? Cause I know it's the most deadly land animal, right? Um, so I think, I think there's, um, a need for facts because you know it, you have to be able to prove but but the story is going to trump and um you know sm we have smell you know smell sight sound all these senses so to the extent we can engage those expense senses it's great the challenge for most of these folk folks is going to be when they're operating is how do they do that at scale yeah if you were going to visit uh you know museum or aquarium they could have a docent tour you around one-on-one -on -one and they could make it exceptional. How do they do that with thousands of guests per day? That becomes harder because I have no doubt that the vast majority of operators would absolutely win if they took their best guest experience person and did it with you one-on-one. -on -one. So figuring out how you do that at scale gets kind of more interesting. Uh, and personally speaking, I love it when I can catch a little bit of, of a movie or an immersive experience or interactive experience or things like that. Uh, something I didn't maybe expect. Hmm. So if we can switch gears here uh, just for a moment on your LinkedIn profile, you talk about your work being the intersection of marketing, sustainability, and innovation. Uh, would love to hear how those three things really come together. Yeah. So at a high level, I have a personal bias that um, profit is good, but if you only focus on profit, you're not serving all the stakeholders you need to serve. And so uh, I think a lot of the brands and particularly brands like zoos and aquariums, things like that, um, you know, they have a certain responsibility uh, to, to act on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which, you know, are broadly accepted as sort of a roadmap, if you will, to making the world a better place, whether that's environmental justice, social justice, economic justice. Um, and so it's my bias that, that when you do these things well, they work in harmony. I don't think Ben and Jerry's has proprietary milking cows and people pay a premium. And I've had more than my fair share of chunky monkey because 
I align to their values. And so I think discerning consumers will pay a small premium for brands whose values align to their own. Does that mean flavor doesn't matter? Of course it matters. Doesn't mean price doesn't matter? Of course it does. Convenience. Those are all key drivers. In every situation, they're going to be key drivers. The tipping point factor, in my opinion, often gets down to sustainability and innovation. And we do that uh, in new and in different ways. Um, if I can learn something about myself and the world around me when I'm visiting an attraction and being entertained, uh, you know, that's a real bonus. I still need to be entertained. And, and, and when I go to a restaurant, I still need to find that the food is wildly flavorful. But if I feel like it's also a, a place where they're adding good to society, then I can get a little more excited about that. And I, I think there's a fair amount of research on this topic. I think the most recent thing I saw was that, um, I think it was from BCG, uh, that the brands that um, have strong sustainability uh, strategies get about a 12% improvement in operating margin, which is really the difference between sort of average performance and great performance, right? Um, and, and again, it's your job as an operator to figure out how to deliver entertainment, how to deliver innovation, how to deliver education at a price point that works for people and makes them feel better about themselves. I feel a little better about myself as a human because I'm wearing my Allbirds today and I know Allbirds values are in line with my values, but would I pay an extra 15 bucks a shoe? No. You got, you got to keep, you know, you got to keep it at, at the price point you're at. I, I, I'm not going to go up. And that's the tension we all face at some level, right? Jeff, it's really interesting. I'm not a marketing person as I, as I will attest to everybody, but one thing you said there that I thought was really, really interesting that I'm, I'm interesting to get your take on it because you talk so much about the, the values aligning and that type of thing is the next step of that, or maybe this is part of the emotional connection when I see myself in that brand. For example, if I see myself as identifying with, you know, Disney or Universal and I and I see myself as part of that, that's what's going to start to create that emotional connection. Yeah, I think when I feel strongly about a brand and will I'm willing to advocate for it and going back to our Gen Z mindset discussion when I'm going to share word of mouth and word of mouse uh, all puns intended, uh, you know, in terms of online reviews, things like that, that's where it really works. And then let's think about the off opposite for a moment. I have flown Southwest airlines for 30 years. Uh, you know, I, uh, I really felt like it was, a, a, you know, a, a David and Goliath kind of brand. And then that brand has breached trust with me on situation after situation. And then they did it at scale recently with the meltdown that they had, which is, you know, sort of well-documented. Well, what happens is consumers don't advocate at the same level. It used to be consumers would advocate for that brand. And then when they don't, what happens is you have this sort of detractor situation that, that expands. So every brand's going to have problems and every brand's going to have successes. The, the, the goal is that you're doing something really well at a high percent of the time. You have a small number of detractors. And then if you're an operator and you fail, you know, you get an awesome opportunity to win me back if you actually act on something. I mean, I've had brands where I said, you know, I was a little disappointed with X and then they went, you know, they go into win back mode and it's like, wow, they actually listened. And again, going back to sort of the discussion we've had, listening is so critically important in developing the things you're going to develop as an operator. So marketing has to support operations. So when I think about this, you know, it's not so simple. I have a sustainability workshop I run with brands and, you know, that sustainability workshop is not a marketing workshop. That's a, you know, whole team workshop. 
And I think the great brands, the great operators get this, you know, all of these functions have to sort of work together and at a price point and convenience factor that works. Yeah. Cause you're yeah. going to, you're going to only pay so much for those old birds, old birds, right. You know, it's, it is what it is. When it comes to brand values, uh, there are, I would say there are some that are universally applicable, whereas there are some others that might draw a line in the sand. And in those cases, those who align with the values become strong advocates, while at the same time, uh, they might be alienating at another consumer base. Uh, should brands be worried about potentially alienating possible business by, I would say, drawing that line in the sand? That's a tough conversation and obviously at the center of a lot of controversy in Florida right now, right? So what I, what I would argue is brands need to understand their editorial authority and then they need to stay in that swim lane. And so, uh, you know, Walmart, uh, you know, ha has taken some strong stands and, and removed, you know, uh, you know, guns and a number of things from their stores. They're in Bentonville, Arkansas. They're in the South. Uh, so that's gotta be a difficult decision. I happen to know that the CEO listens to employees very closely and they, they were having all kinds of opportunities to listen to stuff that's not public facing. And on the employee chats, you know, employees were, you know, worried about safety and coming to work. So you have to solve for that, right? So, I, I, you know, this is a tricky issue and there are great brands that get it wrong. Starbucks is a wildly strong brand and came out on the, the topic of hashtag race together a couple of years ago. They basically made a marketing promotion without putting any substance behind it. It was a fail and they recovered. I think the important thing is, would your employees say this is true? Is it a mirror image of your brand? Have you been consistent? And try not to get too much credit for stuff before you act on it. Because purpose washing hashtag is a fail, right? It, and so the, the strong brands understand we have a brand editorial authority. We need to create content. We need to take a point of view. It these things matter to employees. These things matter to consumers. I don't think brands should intentionally try to piss everyone off unless you're Nike and then that's part of your DNA. Uh, <laughs> but but in, in all seriousness, um, you know, but it, if that's part of your editorial authority, then it makes sense. It would not surprise me for Ben and Jerry's to take a point of view on an environmental justice topic, right? It's consistent with that. So the key part of this is understanding and listening and doing the research with employees uh, with consumers and then having a very clear view. Cause the last thing I want to do is leave it up to, you know, people to make a decision on the fly. Uh, and I certainly don't want to start taking a lot of credit for stuff before I've done it. Uh, you know, so, but, but this is definitely a, a, probably a very hot topic in the attraction space. Cause I know Disney uh, and uh, the governor of Florida have not been getting along as well as one <laughs> might like. Right. Right. Um, Jeff, I'd like to take a little turn uh, um, now, just because you've mentioned a couple of times that you've written a number of books. You've written five books and uh, I've written a couple of books. Josh has a book coming out soon. So would love to kind of yes. dive into your authorship and how that came about. Well, first, congrats, Josh. I know I know how hard that is. But but soon. <laughs> yeah. So it, 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 I'm, I'm the accidental author. Uh, in 2010, I mentioned that I uh, had done some research and I've been doing research, the most recent being the Lane Terralever CX study, but I've been doing research my, my whole career. And uh, I went to Google as one might 
go from time to time to look for information on millennials as consumers. And I got gobbledygook on the search. And so I put in new terms, you know, different, different ways to search for the same thing. And every time I search, I kept getting like nothing. And I think, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's 2010. There's millennials in politics and religion, but that's not millennials as consumer sort of information. So I call a friend of a friend and I'm like, hey, Matt, uh, you know, I know you're the global head of research at the Boston Consulting Group. Um, I'm trying to find information on millennials as consumers. Can't find it on Google. Got this great idea. How about we study it together? Oh, by the way, how about you pay for half the study? Because like, you know, let's go just on a Dutch date for coffee today, right? Pause. Phone calls quiet because we don't know each other well. This is somebody I've been introduced to by a friend. And, uh, and she says, you know, BCG is not in the business of paying for other people's research. I said, I know that. She said, I'll call you back. I'll call you back. Now I, I know the code. I'll call you back is like the code, right? <laughs> she said, I'll call you back. Give me a week. Okay. She called a week later and I did a happy dance. I was so excited. And she said, you know why you can't find it? Cause no one's done it. You found gold in California, Jeff. Nobody knows it's gold. Uh, and we're in, we're going to pay for half this study. I'm going to partner with you and you and the team at BCG will do this study. If you have any trouble sleeping tonight, you could probably Google search American millennials deciphering the Enigma generation. And that study, which took, uh, you know, 2010 and 2011 to get done, turned into the basis of a research-based book. I did learn over time stories trump data. And so the most recent book, The Purpose Advantage 2.0, was more story, less data. But the first book was, was very much an extension of the research study I did with BCG. And, and the most recent book is grounded in data, but, uh, but it's a lot more story and a lot less, lot less data. And, uh, and people want story, uh, which came up earlier, obviously, in our yeah. discussion. I just took a while. It took me a little while to learn that. I wanted to prove the points I was making, uh, you know, through, through the data analysis. <laughs> As you're trying to prove these points throughout all the research that you've done, has there been anything that surprised you or went against what you initially hypothesized? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I certainly... Um, did not see how important sustainability and innovation were uh, when I started down this road. I, I did not. And I'm not sure I had as clear a view on how important it is to win inside and have you know, the loyalty of your employees to win outside. Those things have crystallized over time. It's easier for me to talk about it now and say, you know, this is what I know. But, but if I am honest, those were not uh, obvious at that moment. Uh, I think the, the other thing that's going to be you know, important is the new frontier for competition is going to be customer experience. And that's part of why I'm so excited to be working with the folks at Lane Terrelever because creating those emotional connections isn't just about building a better website or building a faster checkout or, or these kinds of things. It's figuring out how to create surprise and delight at scale and be efficient at the same time. Uh, and that's not easy. Uh, it's not easy at all. And it takes collaboration, not just with marketing, but with the operators who have to deliver it. Uh, and, there, and, and if there was a one size fits all approach, obviously we'd say, oh, here's the playbook from Universal or Disney or Monterey yeah. Bay or wherever. Let's just, you know, everyone does the same. Uh, it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jeff, I wanted to ask you about one of the sort of subtitles of your, of your book, uh, The Purpose Advantage 2.0, how to unlock new ways of doing business. Because I think a lot of people are looking, they're always looking for that silver bullet. They're looking for that new thing that they can do. And you mentioned earlier, sometimes the tried and true is, is where you need to be. Um, but 
how do people find that? Like, like you talk about sustainability and innovation. So how are people finding those new ways to do business and sustaining those, those new ways for success? Well, the first thing I want to do is make sure the book is freely available to any of your listeners. So I'll send you a, a copy and, and we can make sure that anyone can access it and download it. Uh, at no cost. I, what I would say is this, uh, in the book, I outline the workshop I use with brands that can be customized at a brand level. And that's obviously bespoke consulting work. But I outline it because I want to make it freely available, open source to anybody. And at the core, I lean into the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. What's true about your brand? Which sustainable development goal should your brand attach to? And then how can you drive a culture of innovation where the employees are fired up because if the employees are fired up, you're going to have a better guest experience. And if your brand matters and it, you're going to get a, a price premium. If your brand doesn't matter, you're not. In fact, if your brand doesn't matter, you're going to constantly be discounting and you're going to be fighting it out on margin. Uh, and so there is a need for companies in Tomorrowland to make a profit. Stakeholders may say, uh, I don't care, but shareholders do. At the same time, if you only focus on profit and you don't think about the employees, you don't think about the environment, you don't think about any of the communities you're serving in, um, you're going to end up you know, in the hot seat. And so it's a little tricky these days uh, for the larger brands to balance these interests. But I think there are brands that are doing it well at scale. I mentioned Ben & Jerry's, which is a Unilever-owned company. I mean, I think there are definitely brands that are figuring out, okay, I can, I can get you know, these levers. And if I, if I try to make too much profit, then I underestimate in innovation and sustainability. The flip side is if I don't make enough, then you know shareholders get upset. So there is a, a juggling mm -hmm. act here. Um, and I, I wish I could say what the precise am amount you know there should be. I can't. But I would say I generally believe consumers are willing to spend a 5 to 10% price premium for brands that matter to them. And that is going to always be related to the key drivers plus tipping point factors. And if we're going to the restaurant, the key driver is going to be, man, that food is really flavorful, the price is right, et cetera. The, the tipping point for me that I find more, more commonly, you know, customer experience, sustainability, innovation, those are tipping point factors, right? I still have to think, wow, that ride was amazing, or wow, that you know, food was great. That's that's the key driver. But you know, I don't think very many brands are going to compete and win on, on, on flavor. I don't think Ben and Jerry's is going to outflavor Hagendas. I, you know, but they've been number one year after year after year. So a values driven consumer, and look, there are going to always be a percentage of the audience that's going for lowest price, but a values driven consumer who's looking for experiences in their life is going to be price sensitive, but not price only driven. Okay. Uh, and I think the vast majority of attractions are going to need to figure out how they, you know, balance that juggling act. It's not going to be easy, uh, but you know, that's okay. Yeah. Well, would you say that that the reason why they might not, they might focus on, on profit first and everything else is, is kind of second is because there's a direct correlation to we're doing revenue generating initiatives. We're doing cost cutting initiatives versus these marketing sustainability innovations. They still have an ROI, but there's a little bit of a, a longer tail to, to really be able to measure that. And those that are doing the best, the, the profits are a, a byproduct of all of the not profit focused initiatives that they're doing. Does that make sense? Or, or do you see that, that being the case? I think the consumer, you know, walks into the Chipotle and expects the flavorful big ass burrito for nine bucks. 
Your job as the operator is to figure out how you balance food quality, employee satisfaction, and sustainability, and, and, and. And so when, when we're talking about a museum, we're talking about a theme park, whether we're talking about a zoo and aquarium, you know, they're all different, right? A zoo and aquarium probably has a little more of a mandate toward education, but, but consumers want to be entertained. Uh, it's your job to figure out, hey, what is that mix of things at that right price point that allows me to deliver on that? And um, in the model that I prefer to use, some of the profit goes to, to shareholders as it should. And then some goes back into the model to allow you to continue to innovate, continue to act on the sustainability initiatives. And you're going to have to work through what that looks like. You know, what, what does the consumer expect? Could you power that aquarium uh, so that it's, it's, it's a net zero aquarium? Could you take action in front of, you know, in, in, in favor of environmental justice? Could you, you know, what, what is the right strategy for that brand? Each brand's going to have a different view. Um, and, and what I like to try to encourage people is, you know, sort of look in your rear view mirror what is the history of that brand? What, you know, there was a real William Lever. He was trying to make it affordable and accessible for people to shower and clean themselves. You know, it was 150, 200 years ago, but, you know, he, he was real. And so, you know, is there some part of Tomorrowland that is embedded? Because what, you, what you'd like to do is root your story and story is going to matter. And so, you know, most of the brands that are in the attraction space didn't start yesterday. They have a history. They've done things you know, a certain things in the past. So what parts of your history can be part of your future? And then, you know, sometimes you have to also stop doing some things. What could you take out that might allow you to spend more over here? If we're going to go spend a million dollars on this initiative, is there somewhere else where we could take some money out? Not everything has to be incremental. Some of it is also deciding we're going to stop on A, B, or C in order to afford to be able to do some things that we're not doing. And, and that's complex stuff. It requires, you know, involvement from CFO and other folks. Jeff, I'd like to ask you one last question, <clears throat> excuse me, on that balance, uh, because I totally agree with you that there's a balance between, you know, the profit and the employee satisfaction and, you know, all, all the other things that you have to balance as an organization. Have you noticed over time that that balance has shifted at all? It's probably case by case, but for example, when the employment uh, labor market wasn't so tight, could brands get away with a little bit less focus on employee satisfaction and a little bit more on profit, where now it's so tight that the balance really has to come up a little bit on the employee satisfaction uh, because they know that they need to keep people and they need to treat them well and they need to, to lower turnover. I'm curious if there's any data around that, or is that just kind of case by case based on the organization? I haven't studied it, but I have no doubt that if we were to look at 2008 and 2009, we would find that companies could get away with a little more bad behavior, a little less sensitivity, a little, a little more because, uh, you know, we had a pretty significant economic recession and, you know, but having said that, I think COVID has changed things. I think Amazon has changed things. And I think there's an effect on the attractions industry from COVID and from, from Amazon. I mean, if I can get something instantly and my expectation around customer experience is, is dramatically different today, then customer experience is going to be part of that new frontier for me. Hmm. And I'm going to have to dig in and look at research and conduct my own research and think about how I innovate around uh, customer experience. At the same time, 
I continue to innovate on creating emotional connections because figuring out how to make sure that the AI does the upsell, that's not hard, right? That's that it's, I guarantee that if you take the human out that you can digitally deliver on the upsell every time, right? That's, that's programming, that's coding. Um, but I do think there is a new normal and that new normal uh, in some ways is, you know, what we all have this shared experience called COVID. We all have this shared experience of missing the live events, the live experiences that now we can enjoy. Uh, and we have a new expectation around guest experience that's increased. And I don't think we're going back to black and white TV here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's a helpful way to think about it. But I have no doubt if we looked, if there was a prolong, prolonged economic recession, you know, um, like 2008, 2009, you know, yeah, uh, employees would be willing to suffer more. Hmm. We're, not th we're not there yet. And we're not, I don't think we're getting anywhere close to that. Even with the news of the layoffs, unemployment rates are not high on a historical basis. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. So I know we're, we're wrapping up here, but just to kind of add another thought to that, as we look at it from the employee side, they can't do that with employees right now, but many organizations are doing that with their guests and customers of charging more, offering less. And this, is, this transcends all industries. They, you know, I, mean, I went to a restaurant yesterday and they're still charging a, a COVID surcharge fee. You know, there's there's the pent up demand to whether it's go out to eat or go to a concert or, or an attraction. And uh, I, I think hopefully the takeaway is just because you can doesn't mean you should, whether it's with the employee experience and with the with the guest experience side of it. And like Matt said, of, of balancing that and, uh, and I don't know, focus on hopefully doing doing good and doing well with with both uh both groups and and with all stakeholders so uh so jeff uh, this has been a, a fantastic conversation we really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today um if people want to get a hold of you directly if they want to learn more about the research that you're doing if they want your books all of that where would you send them you can uh come to jeff.from at laneterralever.com uh you can find me at jeff from on LinkedIn. In. I'm happy to make the CX research available. You can download it for free at Lane Terra Lever. The book you can get for free by just asking me the purpose advantage. It includes not only a bunch of fun stories, but uh, it includes the business model that we talked about and the and the the workshop approach to to doing this kind of uh, innovation, which which is hard work. I'm I'm not gonna. And so I'd be happy to hear from anyone who wants to reach out. Uh, and if you want to text me, you can 816-682-5401, but I don't sleep with my phone next to my bed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have that Gen Z mindset. Good. <laughs> That's probably better for your mental health. Well, Jeff, thank you again for uh, being here and uh, and sharing your time and your expertise with us. And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release, and even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.